This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we have with us uh, one of the world's foremost experts on U.S.-North Korean relations, someone who has spent his career studying these these issues and working directly upon them as a member of the intelligence community. Uh, Our guest is a longtime friend, uh, Yong Suk Lee. He's an East Asian specialist with 22 years of service in the Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Lee started his career in 1997 uh, when we were both babies, he and I. He was an, he's an analyst and served in multiple leadership roles as a senior intelligence service officer, including as a briefer to the president of the United States uh, through the president's daily briefing. His last assignment was as CIA's deputy assistant director for the Korea Mission Center from 2017 to 2019. Young and I go back to graduate school. We were in graduate school together at Ohio University, I think, like six centuries ago, right, Young? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> early, early 90s. When early Bill, 90s. When yeah. Bill, Cl- yeah, Bill Clinton's first term. That's right. I remember we were there together when uh, President uh, Nixon died. Yes, I yes. We, I remember we, that. It was an important moment for you. Uh, before we turn to our discussion of North Korea uh, with Young, uh, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Painting Ourselves Green. Let's hear it. Painting Ourselves Green. How did we get here, the taunting tweets and the absurdity of animosity? How did we get here, the barbed wire fences and the vehemence of violence? We are at a point now where the helicopters in the sky are always North Korean, and the jet engine noises have to be Kim Jong-un come to blow up America, 30 years from the Cold War when it should feel like 300. And the North Koreans, they seem so nice on MASH, the American-educated surgeons trying to avoid POW camps with the wounded soldiers trying to survive. I just can't believe that this, these ordinary people, are where it began. It must have been the machinations of superpowers, must have been the cannons of endless war, must have had something to do with some sexual fascination with bigger bombs. It must have been the expansive nature of violence in a hypertonic solution, must have had something to do with the salt concentration of the seas of naval vessels, the air content of the helicopter blades. It must have been the destiny of maps to make the insolent want to conquer their countrymen. Why else all the dead, all the death? All the ordinary men blasted open in minefields the way they floated in like in a nightmare and confused, were shot before they even forgot Dubuque, or maybe it was Busan. Why else all the bombs, all the bombed, the senselessly destroyed villages and the random lines? It must have been some mental MacArthur ordering oblivion, forcing us to paint ourselves green to try and survive. It must have been the man in Dr. Strangelove screaming Yahoo as he rides a nuclear missile into a Russian factory, like a simile about a surf embracing the tax collector that's too dark to make. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about the absurdity of the American-North Korean conflict, and it's really about trying to understand how we got to this point. It's taken many decades for us to get to the point, and it's a very complex history that has really led us here. Right, that goes all the way back to the TV show MASH from the <laughs> 1970s and, of course, to the Korean War, right? Young, why why does the United States have this long history of such uh, militaristic relations with North Korea? 
Um, well, Zachary, first, uh, congratulations on the poem. Um, fantastic. Um, and, uh, th thanks for, thanks for that. Um, as for kind of the, why the, uh, animosity, um, I think, um, there's what well, there's genuine animosity among the North Korean, North Korean and North Korean people going back to the Korean war. Um, it's the dominant narrative the dominant narrative still is that's unquestioned in North Korea that um, that the Korean War is was a U.S. invasion of North Korea. Uh, it wasn't a North that it was not a North Korean invasion of the South, uh, with the U.S. quickly trying to reinforce uh, a falling South Korean government. That it was a uh, planned um, U.S. invasion of North Korea. So it's very much a kind of the victim narrative. And you deal with the North Koreans as, as I have. It's just like, and they, it, it may be the, and, and it is certainly the years of doctrin, doc, years of doctrination and years of propaganda. But it's the, the narrative is that it was, um, it was an unprovoked U.S. led invasion of North Korea, and that that led to the bloodshed and, and, and all this. Then it comes to a question. Well, okay, that's the dominant narrative. It's, it's false. It's inaccurate. It's historically inaccurate, but you know that's the dominant narrative. Then why still is this, this still going on? Right. If you see other, if you see other Asian countries like Vietnam, uh, you wouldn't, you would never know. Having I spent a lot of time in Vietnam, um, and uh, you would never know that 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 there was a war between uh, U.S. and Vietnam that was bloody and, and exhausting and 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 lengthy as it was. You wouldn't know that. Uh, but North Koreans uh, still are at it. And what I used to tell the policymakers is that at this point, hating, you, hating the U.S. or being against the U.S. is the only reason the North Korean exists. North Korea doesn't really exist. It's not really for anything. Um, it's, but it's, it's against the U.S. and that's the dominant narrative of their national existence. Why, what, what makes them different? Uh, they're against the U.S. Why are they suffering? Because they have to prepare for U.S. invasion. Why are you starving? Well, we have to tighten the belts to strongen our defense. The U.S. doesn't come back. So one of the things that um, I remember um, early on, it was during the Clinton administration when there was a, with the, a lot of movements, and in, during the during the six party talks as well right. in the mid two thousands uh, with Ambassador Hill. Um, one of the points that myself and my analysts, we always made is that, I mean, the lasting peace is really not possible because the, the North Koreans really need the U.S. more as an enemy than it does as, as a friend. Because if the U.S. was suddenly a friend, all that suffering, all those years of deprivation, which is because of, you know, because of the, uh, because of the, the Kim family regime, it would have been for nothing. If, and, um, and interestingly enough, um, one of the more interesting psychological studies that was done in the, late, um, in the mid to late 90s, um, I, would, I won't name the private institution that actually did this study so they don't get any backlash, um, but it was a well-respected um, well U.S. Um, academic organization. And um, what working with the South Korean uh, universities, what they found is kind of the psychological devastations that North Koreans experienced in the mid 1990s as they were fleeing the famine. You may remember, uh, you may remember what ancient history for Jacob, you may remember uh, Jeremy in kind of early 90s, like 94 before uh, the four party process, how sure, sure. there's an economic deprivation and the famine, which and, and famine in North Korea, which was pretty severe. Um, 
And, uh, and there are some great academic journals published on that in the late 90s, especially from the British medical journal, The Lancet. And it's when these people come across the border, eventually they hook up with NGOs in China trying to provide them support. They were all there thinking they were there temporarily. And during the process, and eventually what led them to try to flee and try to come to South Korea, is, is a carefully documented psychological devastation of a human being, kind of realizing that they lived, their, they lived a lie their entire life. Um, so it's, if you, if you um, so for example, you're a true believer in the party and you think, I don't want to do this, but I just have to go across China to find some food and I'm starving. Uh, then you later f- get exposed to the wider culture. You get kind of exposed to what South Korea is like. Um, you know that the U.S. really doesn't. The president of the United States does not um, wake up every morning thinking how he's going to invade North Korea and make the North Korean and, and and enslave the North Korean people. It's it's an utter psychological devastation that what they documented is because then you say, what have I done my entire life? What is it all been for? Um, yeah. So so that so. It's, um, I mean, it's, it doesn't, the, once again, that doesn't matter what the U.S. does. And that's the point that I, I try again. That shouldn't stop us from trying and shouldn't, you know, try to try, um, stop us from thinking about different ways, shouldn't stop us from working with the Chinese and the South Koreans. But fundamentally, North Korea exists at this point to oppose the United States. And, you know, as long as the Kim family regime is there, they can't really give that up. So how have they maintained this indoctrination? I mean, it seems to us unfathomable that a society could mm-hmm. close itself off in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we do know, you know, they, they're involved in international crime. They're involved in international smuggling. So they do have connections to the wider world. Mm-hmm. How do they maintain this indoctrination? Yeah, yeah so that, that's, a real, that's a real fascinating dichotomy, right? Um, you got... Uh, Word of mouth still is the primary means in which North Koreans get their outside information. It's fairly accurate. So all that I'm describing is early 1990s and the mid 1990s. By now, um, North Koreans know like famous South Korean dramas. They watch it. A lot of them watch it on uh, you know USBs or whatever um, that that's smuggled into the country. They know famous Korean. They know all the Korean pop songs. Um, South Korean pop song. So, and they know kind of what South Korea is like. They, you know, they're not, they, they know all that yet. They still have this, um, you know, remain, remain loyal to this regime. Um, I, I, part of, and I think part of the reason, part part of the reason is that, um, in the, for about 20, I guess now almost a 20 year period with just the exodus of North Koreans on that left. North Korea. I mean, it was pretty much an open border for a while. It's just like anybody that wanted to leave could leave. South Korean government in the early 2000s got to a point where they would charter a 747 from the Korean airlines to just pack it in with as many North Koreans as possible and fly it back because they were so backlogged. Wow. And they would run these fly, and that was in the early 2000s. It's, it's slowed down quite a bit. <laughs> And was a policymaker, I think it was maybe a congressman, and somebody asked me that, and I said, you know, honestly, I think anybody that was going to leave have left. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, and why do they still leave? What do they, I, that's, you know, I think that's maybe just a social psychological question 
that somebody else needs to needs to answer. Uh, I mean, once again, it's it's family, family, right? It's like the the only world that they've known. Um, North Koreans that moved to South Korea, they do not adjust well. Uh, some have actually tried to sneak back into North Korea, and 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 some have successfully. Uh, and the North Koreans use them for propaganda. They just do not adjust to the South Korean society well at all. So, um, you know, I think that that is another well-known factor why there's been a kind of slowdown of of um, of defectors. And that's like any any society. There's a there's a reward system, right? Reward for good behavior. Reward for uh, uh, the system. Instead of tossing your instead of leaving your entire world, I mean, just kind of. That's that's a hard thing to do for anybody. Just leaving your family, your 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 entire world, and just just walking, just walking out. Um, you know, there's a reward system for being a loyal party member. Uh, and at this point, there are a lot of safety valves. Um, North Korean government, you know, they I think they've uh, they've all but given up on trying to uh, control market activities. Last time they really tried that was 2009, and it it backfired spectacularly. Um, and um, so. Long as you stay out of politics, long as you're not critical of the government, and long as you adhere to um, the regime narratives, the government pretty much leaves you alone. I mean, it's um, you know you're you're free about to go about and and, and make money. Um, you know you got to pay off the right people, and everybody and everybody uh, benefits from that um, uh, from that from those kickbacks, and people benefit from which goes all the way to the top, right? Um, if you give somebody, if you give, if you bribe a North Korean official, local North Korean official with a, with a, let's say a carton of Marlboro cigarettes, maybe 12 packs in a carton or something like that. Yeah. He's going to spread a couple of those to his superiors. His superior is going to spread it to his, his superior. So it's built on, you know, it's, 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 it's built on that, um, benefit. That's kind of the tax, you know, you can call it an informal tax system. So you have more latitude to kind of live your life, um, you have more latitude to be able to survive, um, and you know, 1994 was like the height of the height of the North Korean famine, and after about 26 years later, they pretty much kind of figured out how to um, how to how to get by, and I, and I don't know if that's a good explanation why people still adhere to it, but I mean those are kind of major themes that people still remain loyal, and 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 people stay have chosen have made the choice that. Well, that their family and friends have, may have left, but they're going to stay behind. Well, and we've seen a pretty amazing three hereditary transitions of power, which is pretty yeah. unprecedented. How do they maintain that? And, and what would happen if someone like Kim Jong-un, who doesn't have a natural uh, like hereditary heir, how, what would happen if he were to die as it came pretty close yeah. to in recent Recently. You know, one of the more interesting scholarships on North Korea is actually uh, it's actually done by Korean scholars, the South Korean and scholars who study medieval Korean kingdoms, feudal Korean kingdoms. And they say and they're saying, forget going to the archives, look to the north. That's what that's what an ancient Korean kingdom looked like. Wow. You have you have you have. And you know, I, somebody brought back a paper. One of my analysts brought back a paper in the mid two thousand uh, from an academic conference, um, and I read it. And that really, that was like a big light bulb moment for me as a North Korea watcher. This was in the mid two thousands, and and that just really explained the Kim family regime so much, and that really explains the North Korean people so much. If you think about it, 
North Korea, they went from, um, I think one of it's <laughs> Bruce Cummings, right? We talked about Bruce Cummings a lot in, uh, in grad school, Jeremy. <laughs> well, <I remember laughs> yeah, Bruce Cummings in the origin of the Korean War, the, the, first, the, first, the first volume, he talks about how, imagine somebody from the 1500s, suddenly they're dropped in 1895, 1900. Um, how shocked this would be. How shocked would a Puritan be if they're dropped from Primus, Massachusetts, suddenly to, you know, Boston in the um, middle of downtown Boston in 1895. How shocked would that Puritan be? If a Korean farmer from the 1500s were dropped in a Korean major city, let's say Seoul at the time, with, um, in 1895, they thought, wow, there are a lot more people here, but everything would have been very familiar. So they, so that really, I thought that beginning of the origins of the Korean War, that that first chapter, that really kind of captured that essence of, of how long, Koreans kind of stayed tied to that feudal society until the eighteen nine until the eighteen nineties, then nineteen tens, the Japanese um, colonized the peninsula, then the Japanese took over. You had another, you had a different kind of feudal master. You had a colonial master. North Korea never transitioned from that. Right, they went straight from the colonial Japanese from feudalism to thirty years of colonialism to uh, to uh, Kim Jong Kim Jong um, Kim Il Sung backed by who was, a, who was a major in the Red Army at the time backed by the Soviet Union. Um, so if you think about it, that's they, the the North Korea today is really a pure form of Korea as Koreans have always lived, um, kind of this feudalistic existence with brutal rulers um, and uh, hereditary leadership and your existence is nasty and short. You know, really the oddity, the real odd duck, the black swan, whatever you want to call it in Korean history, it's actually South Korea. There has never been a political entity on the Korean peninsula, any size, that was so free, so well-fed and so well-educated. Hmm. South Korea is really the oddity. North Korea is really Korea as Korea has always been. Because it, it turns around our assumptions, right? I mean, because our assumption yeah. is that South Korea looks normal, right? Yep. South Korea is not normal. From a North Korean perspective and from, uh, well, we're, we're, let's say, let's say we're you and I, we're, let's play William McNeil, right? Talk about grad school days. Let's look at the 500-year perspective, that century-long perspective. Uh, we're giving a lot of props to Khan Hiss here and Dr. Gaddis's seminars. <laughs> uh, you look at it from that that perspective. Um, yeah, yeah. North Korea is is how Korea has always been. South Korea is a real oddball. It's a South Korea is that blip on the radar. It's that oddity saying, "What's going on over here?" And it really hasn't lasted that long. You know, through the 1970s and 80s, uh, Peace Corps volunteers. There are Peace Corps volunteers in South sure, Korea. Sure, sure. Um, when in the 70s, when people talk about the Korean miracle, they were actually talking about North Korea. Right. Um, so it's, um, yeah, that's very much that perspective. But once again, there's that dichotomy where South, South Korea has never been more wealthy, never been more free. But North Korea is the one Korean entity that has never, this, it's the first that has been so strategically powerful, so strategically relevant because they have nuclear weapons. Right. So it's feudal kingdom with nuclear weapons. So it comes to another, another dichotomy that it's, um, yeah, the, the people with the influence um, is not the wealthy, you know, top, you know, top 20 global economy. 
um, it's it's actually the feudal kingdom with the 1950s era nuclear arsenal. So, so that's that's actually one of the the questions I wanted to ask. How have they been able to punch above their weight so much? I mean, it's certainly having nuclear weapons um, is part of the story, but but that of course raises the question: How did they get nuclear weapons? I mean, if this is a medieval poor society that can't even feed its its own people, how did they develop yeah. nuclear arsenal? How yeah. did we let that happen? And and how have they been able to use that to to become yeah. uh, almost a world power? Yeah, um, you know, and and people, I, I always say, don't be too impressed with North Korean military technology. You know, North Koreans still fly MiG-15s from from the Korean War. Wow. Um, it's uh, it's I mean, Germany. It's nineteen. They perfected. We're giving North Korea all this spotlight, all this attention. Germany, they perfected nineteen forties technology. So let's let's put it in perspective. They perfected how to build nineteen forties era. You know, fission, fusion bombs, how um, 1940s era um, nuclear arsenal, a 1940s era nuclear arsenal um, with that's delivered by liquid fuel missiles. Though, and the North Korean liquid fuel missile system are just, um, you know, variations of um, the famous Scud missile, right? The reverse engineered, uh, the Russian Russian liquid fuel missiles. And where did Russians get their liquid fuel missile missile technology? They got it from the Germans. They got it from V two. Right. Uh, V two. Right. Hey, we were th- NASA was not the only one who grabbed Nazi scientists after World War Two. Right. Um, you know, Werner uh, Braun wasn't wasn't the only one. The, the Soviets grabbed a fair share of Nazi technology as well. Uh, and it's it's a it's um it's 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 a variation of the V two. So think about it. It's, it's the V two, and the atomic bomb. Yes. And and it's and it, but hey, it goes up and it goes boom, right? In a nineteen forties era, uh, atomic bomb can can do just. Uh, I mean, it's it's inefficient, but if your only aim is to threaten your neighbors, South Korea and Japan, it serves a strategic purpose. How did it get there? I mean, the North Korean nuclear uh, weapons program, it goes all the way back uh, into the 1960s. And it's kind of that North Korea is still looking for that. But there's a kind of the independence streak of North Korea. They wanted independence. They didn't want to be dependent on the Soviets. They didn't want to be dependent on the Chinese. They wanted to kind of find their own path. Um, And of course, all this blew up in uh, in the early 1990s, right? This blew up in the early 1990s when, when we were in grad school. And... Once again, at that time, you had a government in South Korea, in uh, in uh, in President Kim Yong Sam, who was publicly was you know I mean he was agitating for for military action and basically trying to get Republic of Korea ready for war. Um, that window has closed, you know. I mean that window has closed. I cannot imagine even the staunchest South Korean hawk using it as a campaign platform. That they're going to disarm North Korea. It's just that South Korea now just has too much to lose. And, and, and why South Korea is because of Seoul's uh, proximity yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, Seoul's proximity, and um, you know, if, if people who remember how desperately poor South Korea was all the way through the seventies and 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 the nineteen eighties, and you look at South Korea today, can't really blame. The, the South Korean government or the Korean people for not wanting to not wanting to risk that, and um, it's just that the, it's it's and even for the U.S. government as well. Then um, then you throw in Japanese major cities. It's when you have when really 
disarming North Korea by force is, is, is an option that was taken off the table in the early 1990s. If that's no longer an option, then what option do you have when you negotiate? Yeah. And when you negotiate, you trust that your negotiating partners are negotiating in good faith. And it's, that's, you know, and that's been like the story of the North Korean negotiations. Um, you know, one thing I said about North Korean negotiations, I just said, even if we give North Koreans really all the benefit of the doubt, right? All the benefit of the doubt that they're, when they go into negotiations, when they go into negotiations, they really, you know, really, maybe we're really going to try this time. They can work this time. And even if they accept, you know, in the, in the 2000s, you remember when the, it was big news when the South Korean president first visited North Korea yeah, yeah. and met with Kim Jong-il and all the exchanges that was going on and how that really raised people's hopes. And you had the six party talks making, uh, making uh, progress. Um, Let's and you know let's give Kim Jong Kim Jong Il and the North Korean government at the time all the benefit of the doubt. They eventually lead to get to a crossroad. Get to a crossroad, and we, they have to make a decision where you have to give up control. Let's say you give up a little bit of control to let Hyundai or South Korean conglomerates build factories and improve the lives of your people. Will you give up a little bit of security to join the international community? To give up nuclear weapons or whatever, um, it's. Um, but you know, whenever they come to that come to that crossroads, you know, they've 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 declined. You know, the, the government for whatever reason, and you well, know, I don't say whatever reason. It's just that that it erodes control. They can't accept for stability reasons eroding that control. Um, and um, you know, unfortunately, with the with the Iraq war and what happened, what happened to Saddam Hussein and what happened to um, what happened to Gaddafi, you listen to North Korean now, North Korean propaganda, foreign ministry propaganda. They say, "See what happens when you give up. What, what happens right. when you give up uh, nuclear weapons? The U.S. comes and invades." Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, that was, uh, so, Young, if 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 you're comfortable describing, what was it like negotiating with the North Koreans? I mean, you you were involved in these negotiations. What what was it like? Um. It's, you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be patient. You gotta be, uh, you just gotta, I mean, you gotta be patient. <laughs> um, and well, I, 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 once again, I want, I want to be fair to the North Koreans in that, yeah, they lied and they cheated, but I'll give them a benefit of the doubt that, that that's, that's not where they were when they started negotiations. Um, and I also want to add that I haven't, this, that level of negotiations, I haven't really supported uh, in other countries. So maybe it's just as intense and exhausting for other countries as well. But um, they're all negotiating. It'd be surprised at how, how tightly adhere, how even U.S. negotiators, you know, they're really hemmed in. They got to really stay tight. Uh, to their talking points, approved talking points, and and after each round, they're on the secure phone to DC, talking to the Secretary of State and and others, uh, getting the instructions for the next day. Um, but for North Korea, that's like times ten. You have to understand. And what this is one thing that I always emphasize to the negotiating team before we walk in, um, and I always say, I just want to emphasize one thing to you guys. After this is all over, you know, we may move on to another another assignment. We may leave government and, and move on to other careers. We'll go on with those, those lives, our lives. But you have to understand, those people sitting across from they can die. Right. They can, they can die. Yeah. They can die. They can lose everything. And their families can be sent to camps. Right. So 
just you know and i always said don't and it's a don't try to make don't try too hard to make friends or build rapport because that can get them in trouble because if you if you try to corner them and have a, just a chit chat conversation at a bar or, 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 or a cup of coffee during negotiation, they're going to get really nervous. So don't try to like catch somebody alone because you're actually doing it. You're potentially putting them, putting, putting them in harm's way. Um, so it's, it's, so, so you have to, so it's much higher stakes for them. Um, the president of the United States may have 15 minutes in a day to think about North Korea, even, even if it's that, um, um, but you know, for the North Koreans, that's all the U.S. is all they think about. Right, right. Young, what and was like, yeah. what, what was it like in in the negotiations between uh, Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump? What 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 can you tell us about that? Actually, I'd, I'd rather not rather not uh, go into that level of detail. Um, but you know, obviously, a um, lot of lot of it's not as it's not as it's not that wouldn't be at that. At that level, it's not as intense of a discussion because it shouldn't be. All right. the hard work needed to be done below, right. uh, below their level. Right. So right. that's all I'll say. That. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I guess we, we always like to close our episodes by by looking forward. How does this history, and you've given us an enormous, rich, personal, and scholarly uh, understanding of the evolving nature of the North Korean regime, and the challenges for U.S. policymaking that you lived with day to day. Um, what are some of the lessons from your experience for American policy going forward? I understand you're an intelligence analyst more than a policy strategist, but but nonetheless, I mean, you've clearly taken lessons from your experience. And as you say, South Korea does not want to go to war with North Korea. So, so what should American policymakers know, and what should American citizens? think about as they think about the future of American policy in this important region? First, knowing that, um, um, you know, any problems, you can either resolve it or you can manage it. And uh, North Korea is not a problem to be resolved at this time. Anyway, it's a problem to be managed because when you're saying you're going to solve a problem, yeah, there's only one way to solve the North Korean nuclear problem. And that's, you know, that's for for very good reasons. Allies and the U.S. administrations successively have decided that that's too high of a cost to pay. Then you're talking about managing the problem. Uh, when you're talking about let's but let's be realistic. Um, you know, I, North Korea. I always say suffer from that. The other guy was an idiot syndrome, and I say it all. It goes all the way back to Eisenhower. Eisenhower looked at Truman. Truman, I know how to deal with North Korea. <laughs> and, and, you know, that famous speech right after the election, even when he was president-elect, I will go to Korea. And he did. Um, it goes, and every, every, every president, and maybe it's just the, maybe it's just the ego of politicians. They come in, I know how to deal with North Korea. That guy didn't know how to, I, I, and, you know, that same, same, the, and going all the way to, to the, the, the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration and all the successive and Obama administration, all the successive administration before it. So let's just kind of come with a little humility, understand that it's a problem to be managed. There's no resolution of the product uh, problem. And the resolution of the, of the problem comes at the end of the Kim family regime. Uh, one thing about a cruel thing about dynasties is that eventually it comes to an end. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, and all feudal Korean dynasties all came to an end. Uh, there is, there wasn't a Korean feudal dynasty that just went out, went out with a whimper. It usually ended in tragedy. 
uh, as most dynasties and dictatorships go. Um, the question of, of the uh, the question of end of North. People are talking about when will North Korea end? When will North Korea collapse? I said I always said North Korea collapsed a long time ago. North Korea collapsed in the 1990s. What you see today isn't what isn't really a fully functioning nation state. It's just, you know, I, I, I always use the analogy, imagine um, the Sopranos took over a feudal kingdom, right? And they have nuclear weapons, that's North Korea. Uh, so it's, a, it's a more of a syndicate. Um, so you have to, it just, the, the, it's not really end of North Korea, but, but the question of the end of the Kim family regime and the end of the Kim family regime is just a question of when, not if. And when that day does come, probably won't mean the end of North Korea because you know you have a lot of people vested in the system they don't have any interest being poor south koreans or ended up being on trial in some international court for all the you know deprivations that they put their people through and in the in the prison camps and everywhere else um so it's just that i i, I put that long-term perspective in in mind and the best defense is that best defense against that for the united states and really, I think a good long-term investment for U.S. taxpayers from California to Oklahoma to uh, Virginia is investing in kind of that our uh, with our, our, our alliance. Uh, really, just importance of our alliance with the uh, with the South Koreans, our alliance with the Japanese. Really, kind of um, investing in our allies, and we, we don't always do a good job of that. Um, and in, in all, all U.S. administrations, it, it's, it's interesting that I always thought we always, the U.S., US all U.S. administrations tend to give North Korea, Republicans and Democrats, um, tend to give North Korea a lot more attention than they, they do uh, South Korea. I always say the future of the Korean Peninsula, once again, in the long-term perspective, it's not North Korea. It's future of future of the uh, future of the Korean Peninsula. It lies in the it lies south of the border. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was, it's just interesting that we always let the I say it's like a freak show uh, hijacking the center stage. Right. Um, that everybody focuses on on the misbehaving child and not the model student. So I, I would say once again, just kind of invest. Just let's let's not let's really kind of rebuild and reinvest in our alliance structure. Um, you know, and and exercise and think long term. Military exercise, um, game, um, the tabletop exercises, policy negotiations. Think long term, and pose a united front. North Korean regime at this point, they they thrive in the darkness. You know, it's it's a political organism that thrives on confrontation. They look for that dark space between South Korea and the U.S. to agitate. They look for that dark space between South Korea and Japan to agitate. I mean, literally, don't let don't let things that flourish in the darkness agitate you, you know, bring them out to the light and the line, light you shine upon them. Shouldn't be any kind of misguided notion of that we're going to finally help them see the light. The light you shine upon them should be a strong united front with your, with your Asian allies, the core Asian allies. That's really kind of been the pillar of stability in uh, East Asia uh, since the end of the Korean, end of the end of the World War II. What you're describing so eloquently sounds like multilateral containment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> Absolutely. And and that goes all the way and that goes all the way to Europe, right? With NATO um, and our and even our most important relationships, right? With uh, with Canada and Mexico, our, our our two most important neighbors and our 
and our um, European allies. It's it's you see it's uh, when you when you have strategic competitors, when you have you know when you're dealing with China, when you're dealing with Russia, when you're dealing with North Korea. Um, one of the things I always this I, I would you know same thing I used to tell my uh, my officers at the CIA is that don't try to do it alone because you're not in it alone. Right. Right. It's, and it's foolish to try to do it alone. Yes. Um, so, and, but unfortunately, and we just recently celebrated VE Day. Unfortunately, that's a lesson that uh, everybody forgets. Yes. Um, well, yeah. The theme of our podcast, which is that democracy thrives in a multilateral environment, a cooperative environment, working with other regions. Mm-hmm. Zachary, for, for younger uh, listeners like yourself and, and those who will be taking over, for people like Yang who have been leading our policy for so long, uh, do do people of your generation do you see the value of multilateralism? Do you understand these issues, or or is it still a more America go it alone attitude that you see more commonly? Well, I think that uh, the United States uh, definitely uh, has been a part of this multilateral uh, global coalition for so long that it's really embedded in our young people that we need to work together that we can't go it alone. And I think that's something that our historical education system has really emphasized recently. And I think there's real hope in that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, let me just kind of add one more thing. So I want to kind of another throw in another academic study is that if you look at the studies, a South Korean teenager in Seoul will have more in common with Zachary than a teenager in Pyongyang, North Korea. Interesting. And they said they said the language gap is actually a very small gap. It says that kid that that, you can learn English, you can learn Korean, but you can't put a suburban teenager from a you know top twenty global economy and drop them into a feudal country and expect them to uh, thrive and vice versa. So I think I think the hope is with the young and uh, and uh, and uh, kind of that the the things that bind us uh, in a lot of the in the multilateral democracies, the strong strength of our people, our education, our economy and our openness. Well, you know, that said so well, young. And and I was thinking this months ago before we were in quarantine, when we went to watch at one of the local movie theaters. Uh, the recent South Korean film that won uh, the Best Picture Award in the United States. Oh, Parasite. Parasite, Parasite yeah. And, and uh, it's extraordinary to sit there and, and look around the room, you know, in Austin, Texas, and see all these young people like Zachary uh, with no direct connection to Korea uh, interested in connecting with this movie. And I think it's your point, right, that 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 now even our arts culture, our film culture, they're, 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 this is the product of globalization, the connections between South Korea and the United States. And, and those are so strong and, and it's such an asset for us to build on it. So uh, I, I really, really, really appreciate Yang, your sharing your insights, your experience, your knowledge uh, with us. And thank you also for your service over many, many years. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you again. Thank you for joining us, Yang. Oh, thanks for having me. And Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always, and for your insights. And thank you to our listeners for joining us uh, for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.